it's been a um, I think just a heavy week for many of us in the room. It's been a really heavy week for our for our country, for our friends uh, around the globe. <clears throat> and uh, Friday, um, I was out with some friends, and I you could, they just could tell there was weight on me. And uh, sometimes, as as people, we don't know what to do when others are feeling the weight of sorrow and grief and anger. And so some of you may be like, wow, I showed up at church and like, it kind of feels like a downer. Because it's been a downer of a week and our God is big enough to listen to our hearts, the real stuff within our hearts. When we read the Psalms, it gives us language to how to pray to God that it's okay to be angry, it's okay to be frustrated, it's okay to be incensed. It's okay to ask the question, God, where are you? Where have you been? Are you sleeping? These are not words that that our brothers and sisters made up. These are words that we are borrowing from the scriptures because God gives us freedom to speak to him because he's not a distant father. He's one who's close. And so I just want to remind, I'm heavy this morning. There's just a heaviness about my, my heart today. And so it's good that we can be in a place where we can all recognize that together. Amen. Thank you, Renew, for being a church that's willing to step into the uncomfortableness and to spend 15 minutes of our Sunday actually lamenting and actually calling out the things that we see. And I'm thankful that we serve a God that listens and who's present with us and to us this morning. Um, yeah, as, as I said, uh, my name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Renew, and um, we are week two in a discussion around misconceptions of who God is. And uh, it's called God is a blank and other misconceptions. And if this is your first time with us, we're really glad that you uh, came and are able to, to, to pay attention and listen to some of the things that are happening. Um, Jim Smith, uh, he is an, an author uh, who, who wrote a trilogy of, of some fantastic books, uh, Good and Beautiful. Uh, just if, if you, James Brian Smith, Good and Beautiful. You'll You'll see him come up. Uh, but he has this amazing quote, and it says this, We are shaped by our stories. In fact, our stories, once in place, determine much of our behavior without regard to their accuracy or helpfulness. Once these stories are stored in our minds, they stay there largely unchallenged until we die. And here's the main point. These narratives are running and often, and often ruining our lives. That is why it is crucial to get the right narratives. And so this morning, as we're thinking about narratives, we're thinking about misconceptions. Misconceptions are narratives that are moving us in a direction that is untrue. And this morning, uh, I have the privilege and am actually kind of excited in a weird way to talk about God as an angry tyrant. Um, how many of you have had moments when you've seen your dad's or mom's angry with you? 
there is a vivid one in my mind. Um, some of you know my dad. Uh, he looks like a cross between the Hulk and Chewbacca. Um, <laughs> He could very easily rip the arms off of any living person. And so I was uh, 17 years, 18 years old. I was just about to graduate, and I was out with my friends. And earlier that day, my dad said, hey, you need to come home uh, and make sure you mow the yard. I, yeah, yeah, no problem, Dad. And so uh, what happened was is I get home uh, late. Um, and I had friends there, and I was like hanging out with them and goofing off, and my mom kind of gives me this look and says, uh, your father's out mowing the yard. And all of a sudden, like that like record scratch thing happened in my brain, and I thought, oh no. Uh, and so I start walking out, and here's the bad part. Uh, my parents had this really big yard, and the rider mower was broken, so he needed me to do the push mowing. And um, so I, I just see my dad, and he is like, he's got no shirt on, he's sweating profusely, um, and he's like running behind this lawnmower. And, and I'm like, hey, dad, and he starts running to me with the lawnmower in hand. <laughs> and I think to myself, I'm about to die. He gets about, oh, 10 feet from me and hammer throws the lawnmower. And the thing just goes, like, and it just it breaks in like 14 pieces. And he gets about this far from my head and utters words that had no meaning, just sound. And I literally cowered. I cowered. I cowered very much. I mean, I was so, as they said in Peanuts, I was sore afraid. And I thought... My life was over. But what we miss in that story, like it's kind of funny, you know, tra you know, tragedy slash you know, anger plus time equals humor or something like that, I don't know. Uh, it's funny now, but it really wasn't at the time. But the truth is, there is a pattern. I was continually saying I was gonna do something and not doing it. And so my dad's anger was justified. Now, throughout breaking lawnmowers, I don't know, but <clears throat> there was a justification that anger, because there's a pattern, pattern developed. And so this morning, as we think about the, diff the different misconceptions that we're going to be looking at throughout the time, but specifically this morning, what we're looking to do is we're looking to take a picture of the misconception, we're looking to face it head on, and then we're looking to, look, to, to check out the scripture and see what that has to say about who God is accurately. And so what we can understand about the scripture is that God makes himself known in many ways to many people within the story of, of, of the scriptures. Um, but he has revealed himself the most and most fully through the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Colossians 1 was a passage that J.R. brought up last week. And he talked about how uh, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And John 14 says... Uh, that if you've seen Jesus, Jesus says this, if you've seen me, then you understand who my Father is. And so I want to encourage us this morning to reject any view of God that is unchristlike. And so the good news is that no matter what picture of God that we've gotten stuck in our heads through Jesus, we can come to know the true character and the true person and the true heart of God. So last gathering, Jr. talked about God as a good luck charm, uh, and this week I get a chance to look at the complete opposite end of the spectrum, which is an angry tyrant. 
Uh, many of us have had conversations that go something like this. Uh, how could you believe in a God that destroys nations? How could you believe in a God <clears throat> who causes earthquakes, has angry followers, is waiting for me to mess up so he can squish me like a bug? How can you believe a God that allows road rage to continue and all these things that are happening? That God is an angry tyrant, and I say amen, and that's not the God that I serve. And so where does God as an angry tyrant come from? What fuels this misconception? And my friends, this is one of the most common misconceptions uh, that, that I hear, that we hear. Um, this, uh, whoever God has used for his PR firm has not done a fantastic job in terms of portraying who God is. And so is God an angry tyrant? I mean, the God of the Old Testament seems like such an angry dude. These are, these are things that we hear. Um, he likes to smite so many people. Um, there's this image of God sitting in, in heaven with lightning bolts just striking people left and right. He floods the world. Uh, he strikes a guy down because he, he tries to save the Ark of the Covenant from falling off of a wagon. Um, he just seems angry and waiting for those uh, to do something wrong. Uh, he sends people to hell. He's grumpy even on good days. And these are some of the misconceptions that we hear, that we see in Scripture. But even if we get out of the Scriptures with an accurate view of what God is, who God is, what he looks like, what his character is. Um, unfortunately, some of the followers of God haven't done a great job keeping a good picture. Uh, we th see the, the many church marquees um, that are... are the, if, please never take theology off of any one of these, ever. I love the, the best sausage supper in St. Louis, come and eat Pastor Thomas. That's great. <laughs> You may actually want to go there. But outside, but outside of that, a lot of people get their theology, get their ideas about who God is by looking at these signs. If we go back in history, we think about the Crusades. We think about, in our country, the Salem witch trials. We think about slavery. We think about um, the protesters who stand outside of soldiers' funerals uh, waving banners and saying, these people are going to hell. We think about the folks who tote the signs that say, God hates fags. We think about late-night television preachers, the bullhorn guy on the street telling people that they're going to burn in hell if they don't repent. We think about preachers saying that 9-11 was a judgment against the sinfulness of New York City and America. My friends, we don't have to look far to hear stories of angry, judgmental Christians. Uh, even in our insurance policies, uh, we see the clause, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, an act of God, which never means good. It always means earthquake, tsunami, flood, uh, and this embeds our minds. This, this is an embedded theology within a culture that you don't mess with God because he's angry and he's going to get you. And so if we think about the picture that we see within followers and what the scripture says, those are two things. But even when we think personally... Some of us have these narratives, these false narratives in our mind that all is going well until the bottom falls out. A miscarriage, a loss of a loved one, our finances go south, a marriage falls apart, um, you, your, your job, your boss is a total jerk, and, and that this is in result of you doing something wrong, and so God is angry with you. 
Some of you have had abusive parents growing up. Or a dad who was an alcoholic or a rageaholic who would snap on a dime. And we've, we've lived with this idea or concept, if I do good, God is happy and pleased with me. If I do wrong, God will be angry with me and smite me. And so many of us, many Americans who, who are Christians, who aren't Christians, live in a fear that if we do something wrong, that God is waiting to catch us. And he's waiting to squish us like a bug. And, and some of us think, some of us even in this room today think that one of the reasons that we're not in a great place in our life is because God is punishing us for the mistakes that we've made in our past. But the truth is, no matter how we get there, no, no matter how we get to God as an angry tyrant, God as an angry tyrant is a misconception. And one of the things we have to understand is much of these come from reading the Old Testament out of context. And so if I, if I, if I, if I watch a movie, have any of you ever watched a movie and just sort of started in the middle and you're like, that guy's a total jerk, but what you don't see is the whole story. You don't see the ending, and you just have this picture. If we don't understand the entire context of it, we don't read things within context, then we miss, we miss the whole story of the movie. We miss the whole story of God. So we can't just fly in and fly out of scriptures and be like, see, that's where God's angry. See, that's where God's angry. See, that's where God's angry. We can't, we can't do it. And one of the things that, that we learn very early on within the scripture is we, we learn this thing, and this is really cool. Names are important. How many of you have friends? And their name just fits them. Like, I got a buddy named Bob. He's Bob. Like, you just know. Or the guy that they call Tiny, who's really big. And, the, and I mean, you just know. Like, that's who they are. Like, names are important. And so when we look at the scriptures, when, when, when a name is thrown out, and a lot, unfortunately, a lot of us don't even know how to pronounce, I don't know how to pronounce a lot of the names in scripture. But it's not just naming someone for the sake of giving them a name, but there's meaning behind their name. And so when we, when we come across the name of God, it's really interesting. It's only four letters in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew language. Only four letters. It doesn't even have a name. It just has four letters. But when we come to Exodus, and the story of Exodus is this great story, and it's this amazing part where God hears his people, who he called years ago to, to follow him. They've been enslaved for 400 years and God calls them to be, to, he calls them out, he rescues them from slavery, from the slavery of Egypt, and he brings them to be his people with an identity and a culture all of their own. He rescues them. But God doesn't just rescue them like, like someone that just kind of pulls someone out and then just lets them go. God rescues them and he, he begins to teach them what it means to be a community what it means to be a, a culture, what it means to be a family uh, who actually lives a different narrative that isn't like Egypt, that doesn't go to slavery, that doesn't go to oppression, but goes to living, uh, living in, this, in this alternative culture, this culture that is just very different. So one of the things that, that we see in this story is that God is present with Israel. And, and we see God show up in this really amazing way. Uh, and, and I want you guys, if you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus 34, 6 through 7. If you don't have them, it's up on the screen. And this is God, um, this is God proclaiming his name, and his name is long. 
So we, we think four letters, but in the moment when God meets Moses, Moses wants to see God. He's the leader of the Israelites. He says, God, I, I want to know you more. Um, so who are you? What is your name? So this is his name. This is the name of God. And listen to his name because the name has meaning and the meaning is this. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquities, iniquity, transgressions and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And now most of us would want to stop right before that very last piece, right? It's like, God, you sounded so cool until you hit there. Someone must have added that, but it's not true. This is God. This is who God is. If we want to know who God is, and friends, this is in the Old Testament. We're not talking about um, the full revelation of who Jesus is, but as we think through this passage, that God is compassionate and gracious He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And he keeps his loving kindness for thousands. He's a forgiving God. He forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Yet by no means does he leave the guilty unpunished. And so here's the big question. Is God angry? The answer is no and yes. Yes, God does get angry, but that actually is good news. We're going to talk about that. God's anger is rooted in God's goodness and love for us. God gets angry at the things that are destructive for us. He gets angry at the things that keep us from the life-giving relationship that God desires to have with us. God is not an angry tyrant, but a concerned, good, and loving Father. And so we need to begin this conversation by looking at what anger is and what anger is not. If I took a poll and said, is anger a good thing or a bad thing? Most of us would probably, I don't know, maybe we'd be split half down. That's good, it's bad. It can be good, sometimes it can be bad. Um, But the truth is, is that anger is not always a bad thing. Uh, Anger is actually an indication of love. It's an expression of love. Uh, I I don't know about you, but as a parent, I've experienced this uh, when someone hurts my kid. Uh, And it's this, you know, the really weird, normal uh, thing that happens to a dad. Uh, Your kid comes home and says, Dad, so-and-so is picking on me. Where's his dad? I will take that guy. I mean, this this anger roots up inside you. You're thinking like, all right, I'm going to go into school. I'm going to find that kid, and I'm going to just point at him and scare him. And hopefully all will be okay. And then you realize, wait, I'm an adult. And, uh, I, but, but that anger just wells up in us, right? As, a, as parents, as friends, uh, for those of us that have friends uh, who have gone through difficult times, have you been angry? Yeah. And is that a bad thing? No, it's not. Um, walking with a loved one through an addiction. Friends, you will get angry. If you have a friend or a son or a daughter or a father or a mother who is in the throes of addiction, you will see a new understanding of love because anger is something that happens out of that deep love that you have. It is an indication of our love. I've sat with folks who have experienced the deepest of betrayals uh, within their marriages and within their relationships. In the midst of that hurt, I see anger. And anger is because there's a deep love that has been broken. 
My friends, God's anger is justified, and it's a good thing. Because if God is indifferent, if I am indifferent in the midst of all this, I really don't care. If I approach a situation, if we approach, if God approaches a situation with apathy, how is that loving? You know, we, we think, and again, I'm not picking on parenting styles, but we there, there's these sort of camps, you know, like let your kids discover everything on their own. But by God, I'm not going to let my kid run into a street to just do what he wants to do because he's going to get hit by a car and killed, and that's on me. And I need to make sure that I am helping my kids grow as parents, that, that we are entering into this conversation, helping to raise people. As educators, as counselors, as people that work with other people, we don't just want life to do whatever the heck you want to do and figure it out on your own. That's not loving. And anger comes out of the place that is of love. It's not negative. In fact, it's not the opposite of love. Um, ben shared with me a song by the Lumineers where there's this beautiful line, the opposite of love is indifference. And so is anger wrong? No. God gets angry out of his love. And some of those times when he gets angry out of his love, actually all the time, we should be angry about those things as well. And so here's what God's anger is. And the truth, because if, if the truth is that God gets angry, we have to understand that that comes out of a relationship. It comes out of context of relationship. And so God chooses a people, as I talked about a little bit next, that he chooses a people called Israel. He, he, they're enslaved by Egypt, and he rescues them. He pulls them out. It says that his anger burns towards Egypt. And we hear the story, which makes God seem really mean and angry, but we hear the story of the ten plagues. And so in the story of Exodus, um, God is rescuing his people, and he sends ten plagues, and they just get worse and worse and worse and worse. And we can look at it and see God's angry. He's mean and he's angry. But what we don't understand is these are 10 opportunities for Egypt to repent. These are 10 opportunities for Egypt to, to turn back. And, and theologically, that's a, it's, it's a ball of wax to really get into the, the wholeness of that story. But, but we understand that what happens is in the midst of God's anger over the oppression of his people, he's still giving Egypt opportunity to repent. And so God gets angry. His, his anger and his judgment are, are these things that are very confusing and very interesting for people and cause a lot of frustration. And I hear many people say that, how can God be loving but also be a judge? Uh, we have to understand, God is holy. He gets angry at sin. And here's why. Because he longs to be in relationship with us. He longs to be in relationship with the people that he created. And the misconception of God as an angry tyrant is rooted in the misconception of sin. If we think that sin is a breaking of a somewhat arbitrary rule or is an offense to the great and almighty rule breaker, <coughs> rule maker, uh, as an offense to God's misunderstood holiness, then God's anger seems rather tyrannical and wicked. But if we understand sin in the context of relationship, 
If we understand sin as destructive to our relationships, and uh, as Drew Jackson spoke a few weeks ago, he talked about sin breaks four main relationships. This is actually borrowed from Irenaeus, an early church father who talked about when sin enters the picture, our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with ourselves, the way we view ourselves is cracked and flawed. The relationship in, in, in what I am with my brother, my sister, my wife, my friend, my kid, that's broken. And the relationship with creation is broken. This is an old view of sin, that it's not just something that you do wrong and things happen, but it breaks relationships. And so when we understand sin in the context of relationship, it, it begins to make a lot more sense. We think about the story of Genesis. Um, as God creates the heaven and the, world, uh, and the earth, and he says it's good, and he makes man as, and, and women in his image, and he says it's very good, uh, man and woman sin. And it's this, this amazing contrast. If you look at Genesis 2 and 3, there's this amazing story about um, God makes man and woman, and it says that they're naked and they feel no shame. And then they sin, and the first thing they do, the first thing they do is they make coverings. for the, They recognize their nakedness, and they make coverings to cover themselves. And then they hide from God. Think about the brokenness that sin does as it enters the picture. And we don't have to think that far within our own life when we've been sinned against or sinned against someone else in the way that that has broken relationship and made forgiveness this really hard, difficult, awkward thing that we're trying to continue to work towards. And God's anger towards sin looks a lot like a parent disciplining a child or helping to correct a child. And so the goal of God's discipline, the goal of this is that we begin to trust God enough so that what, I, what that looks like is someone else said, if you want a good definition of sin, it's when you pray the Lord's Prayer instead of thy will be done, it's my will be done. So if I get all the things that I want, I'm pretty sure I'm going to end up being miserable at some point. I think I'm going to be happy, but in reality, the goal of all of this is that we learn to trust that God is a good father and that we learn to depend on him even more, no matter what the situation or circumstance, so that when we can walk through, at that point, we can walk through the tragedy and not blame God, ourselves, or others. As the call, and, and it will cause us to rise above in this incredible experience of humility, strength, and grace. So the other thing we have to understand about God's anger is it burns against injustice. Um, our, our, our team that, that um, meets on Wednesday mornings, we, we, spend, uh, we spend time reading through scriptures and praying together. We just finished reading the book of Amos. Uh, if you haven't read the book of Amos and you want to see a picture of God's anger, check it out. Um, you might not want to read it before you go to bed. But God is angry because of the way that Israel has become Egypt. They began to oppress people. They've cheated. They've robbed. They've taken advantage of the widows and the marginalized and the poor. They have instituted racism and classism. And God is so angry. It says, I will take you off to another country with hooks in your mouth. He is angry in the context of the people that he's called out of slavery are now, they have become the slave masters. And they are oppressing others. 
My friend, when God's angry about things like this, we should be angry about things like this. When we are confronted with racism, sexism, oppression, trafficking, uh, the abuse of the poor, that should make us angry. Apathy is not A, B, and C. Apathy, if that's letter C, that's not an option. Anger is a normal thing for us to feel in the midst of that. Almost every time that God gets angry, it's because of injustice and wrong treatment of either himself and that relationship or those in the margin or the way people are treating others. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished is that, is that phrase that we all just sort of want to erase from the name of God so he's more like a really, um, you know, like a Care Bear kind of a God. But what we have to understand is this, and my friends, we are, we are living in this. The sins of our fathers have been passed on. And, and, and America right now, this week, is, is, is being reminded that when we didn't abolish slavery at the turn, at, as, as our nation was being founded, as we founded it on the injustice of racism, like we, and yeah, you're right, none of us haven't necessarily jumped into racism right off the bat, like, yeah, I'm going to be a racist. You know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure none of you have owned plantations, and have done some of these terrible things. But guess what? We, we as a nation are continually being reminded of the sin in which our forefathers did not, did not confess and did not get out of the way. So yeah, I think that's what it looks like. I think this idea of God visiting to the children and the grandchildren, the fathers, the sins of, uh, of the fathers, is this picture that sometimes we make these decisions that just continue to haunt us. But that doesn't mean that God does not love us. It means that God continues to call us out of that. But our actions actually have meaning. And we are called to repent and lament because God is a God who forgives. But walking in that forgiveness calls us to action. Friends, if you've ever been married to someone or known someone or hung out with someone who struggles with addiction, the, that, the trust doesn't just get built back up overnight. It takes time. But God is a God who says, I will wipe the slate clean and bring you back into relationship with me and heal you even while you're broken and messed up and hurting. And my friends, this kind of God, this picture of anger isn't just attached to the Old Testament, but we have to understand Jesus himself gets angry. Jesus walks into a temple and he sees the poor being take, taken advantage of and he flips a table and he, and he drives people out with a whip, and he is frustrated with the way that he th sees things going. He makes this comment, my house will be a house of prayer. Meaning, stop taking, stop taking advantage of these people. Um, he gets angry when the religious uh, make rules that exclude people from the love of God. Uh, when people refuse to listen, uh, he gets angry when the people continue in sin. He gets angry when the disciples continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. Um, but what we see within, within the picture of Jesus is that his anger is balanced in this beautiful place of truth and love. Uh, Warren Wearsby says, truth without love is hypocrisy. And love without truth, um, just lost that, wow. <laughs> Something. Hmm. I'll come back to that. Brutality is what it is. It's brutality. Thank you. 
And so what we see is in that moment, there's a beautiful story of Jesus uh, with the woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. And, and in the culture and in the context, she, she's, that's a death sentence. And they throw her in front of the crowd, and Jesus is confronted. And they said, Jesus, what should we do with this woman? She's been caught in the act of adultery. And what does Jesus do? Uh, it says he writes on the sand. And yeah, what he wrote in the sand, nobody knows. Maybe he was doing sand art or Zen gardening or something. But he wrote something in the sand and he stood up and he says, okay, great. So whoever has the first stone, you go ahead and throw it. It says that all these people just started walking away. So if you just like close your eyes, just imagine hearing the sound of stones thudding against, against the sand. That's what this woman is hearing. Stones just being dropped. And then she stands, you know, Jesus says, you know, um, woman, who's here to condemn you? She says, ah, oh, you know, no one, Lord, because neither, neither do I. Slate's clean. But listen to the love and truth. So that's the loving part, right? Like, you're not condemned. But this is the truth part. Go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. Stop running around. I have life and life abundant, and it's much better. You think, you may think that that life was good, but I've got something so much better for you. And so if God, as an angry tyrant, is a misconception, then what is he really like? My friends, God is a good father. Uh, one of the leading descriptions of God in all of Scripture is that of a father, which can be really hard for some of us, as I stated above, those of us that have had not the best fathers. And that's part of our broken narrative. We need to rewrite the narrative. And if we want to understand what God is like, we look to Christ. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If we want to see God, what God is like, then we need to camp out with Jesus. God doesn't hide from us. He reveals himself. And if we want to know God, we need to know Jesus. So one of the things that Jesus does is he tells stories, and the stories are these beautiful ways for us to begin to rewrite our narrative of how we view God. And so some of us who view God as an angry tyrant, and if the, if the truth is that God is a good father, we, I want us to camp out in a story, uh, and this is a story of the prodigal son. And so Jesus was confronted by... Um, by the Pharisees and the scribes because Jesus was eating with the wrong people. He was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, uh, people that weren't clean, they were messy, their life was a bit weird. And so they were very frustrated with him, and it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so then Jesus tells this series of three stories. The first story is a story about the sheep, uh, 99 sheep. And he says, you know, uh, the, uh, the, you know th this, is, this is what it's like. This is what, this is what the heart of the father is like. It's like a shepherd who loses one out of 99 sheep. And he leaves the 99 and he looks out. He finds the one and he brings him back. And then the next story is this, is, is this another story where he says, uh, it's like a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one and she tears the whole house apart, finds it, throws all, and throws a party because she's so excited that she found the one. So that this good father, you know, the heart of God is not one who is there to uh, just discard and leave, but he's one that longs to rescue and redeem. And then we get to the culmination of the story, and, and here it is. I'm going to read it. It's in Luke 15, so if you have it, you're more than welcome to open up to it. I'm going to ask that you stand, because you've been sitting a long time, um, as we read this passage. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. 
So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, if I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and, and, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he was summoned. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring uh, what, what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And you have never given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours come, came, uh, when your son of came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes and killed the fattened calf, you've killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, You've always been with me, and all that, all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. You may be seated. One to 99, one out of 10, and one out of two. There is a progression in this story. My friends, we have to understand, um, for, a, for a younger son to go to his father, first of all, the older son is the one that gets the inheritance. So the fact that the younger son says, give me my half. What we need to understand within the context is that's like saying to your dad, you're dead to me. Give me my money. This is a hard, hard, hard word. Um, JR sent me a, a, just an article from a, a guy who worked within a Middle Eastern context who shared the story. And uh, they, the, this group of men got so angry with the fact that the father would already give this son his inheritance or the fact that even the younger son would ask. So like there's anger from why would the father do that for his son? There is anger in the sense of why would the son do that to this, to this father? Why would he say you're dead to me, spit in his face and walk away? And so as we hear the story, we have to also understand, too, within a context uh, of, of Judaism, as he's reading this story, and it says that, that this, this guy goes and he works for this man and he's living with the pigs. That, that's a huge no-no. You don't, you don't do that. Like, literally, he's, he's dead. His, his religion has completely failed him. He's completely broken. He's gone. There's nothing left. 
and he's eating the same things that the pigs are eating. So as a Pharisee is hearing the story, he's thinking, oh my gosh, this joker is done. And then we, we, we read the culmination of the story, and, and this is scandalous. The God we serve is so scandalous. He's a good, good father. The way the story should end, and the way that it's maybe ended for some of us, the way that we think it ends, is in the son, as he's a far way off and limping his way home, the father meets him at the mailbox and says, what the heck are you doing here? You're dead to me. You need to leave. But what we hear about the heart of the father is that he's been leaving the light on and scanning the horizon every night since he's been gone. And while the sun is a far way off, the father goes running out of the house to meet him at the mailbox. I just imagine the servants and the folks that are working the farm watching this whole thing happen say, oh man, here it comes. He's back. And the father wraps his arms, embraces his son, and celebrates that the son who was lost and dead is found and alive. Our God is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. My friends, he is a God who leaves the light on. There's no such thing that someone is too far gone who is not welcome home. So yes, God does get angry. But my friends, that's the good news because his anger is, is rooted in his goodness and his love for us. He gets angry at the things that are destructive to us. He gets angry at the things that keep us from life-giving relationship that God desires us to have with himself and with others. God is not an angry tyrant, but he's a concerned, good, and loving father. He's a God that leaves the front porch light on, and no matter how far you've run, no matter how many times you've flipped him off, no matter how many times you've turned your back, God has not. He has left the light on, and he's scanning the horizon, waiting for you to come home. My friends, this is the good news of the gospel, that when Jesus spread his arms out on the cross, that it was a statement, it was an exclamation point that his love is so much bigger than what we thought it was, that he'd be willing to invite us in through his own death into relationship with who God is. So my friends, our Papa is waiting for us to come home. Here's how I want us to end our time. Uh, I have a picture by Rembrandt um, called The Prodigal Son, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I, I actually believe that there are people in this room uh, who, who may really identify with the son, the, the retur returning to God this morning. I, I sense that there are people that are very much older brothers who are angry about our prodigal friends coming home. 
And I have people, I, I believe that there are people that feel like they really are connecting with the Father. But what I want to do is I want to spend a minute or two reflecting on this picture and answering one question between you and God. Which character are you today? Heavenly Father, we confess that we, we, we buy into misconceptions. Or we confess that some of us here really feel like you are an angry tyrant. And God, I ask that you would replace that narrative uh, with the truth of your scripture. That you're a God who leaves the light on, who's scanning the horizon, who's waiting for us to come home, who's meeting us as he sees us walking from far away. Lord, we rejoice that you're a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances, one that never gives up on his kids. And that you're a God that longs for all of us to be his kids, not just the really squeaky clean ones, but even the ones that are messy and struggling and dirty and hurting. In fact, especially those ones. God, some of us are other, our older brothers and we have this amazing sense of judgment and entitlement. And we need to confess that to you. And Lord, we ask that you would hear our prayers and help us, help us to be loving and kind like our Father. Help us to realize that you love us not because of the things that we do, but because of who we are as kids that you've made. And Lord, some of us are actually in the place of a father right now where we're waiting for our kids to come home. We're waiting for our friends to turn. And we identify with that today. So we, we pray for our prodigal friends who are far off. And Lord, we ask that you would, you would, you would put the, the thought in their brain, maybe I can go home. And Lord, I pray that as our prodigal brothers and sisters come home, that they would experience the lavish love that you have for them. In your name we pray. Amen.